Welcome to the Ginghamsburg Podcast. After today's message, take a second to download the Ginghamsburg app. It's the best way to find out about and engage with what's happening at Ginghamsburg. We hope the following message helps you activate your faith and take the next step in your journey with Jesus. I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. How long? How long must we sing this song? How long? Broken bottles under the children's feet, bodies strewn across the dead end streets. I won't heed the battle's call. Puts my back up, puts my back up against the wall. Now, some of you might listen to these song lyrics and think that they were penned yesterday about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, but they weren't. No, they're from a song penned in 1983 by Irish rock band U2. Any U2 fans in here? Woo! That's what I'm talking about, right? And it's fascinating, even though Bono, when he was writing the song, didn't have any one conflict in Northern Ireland in his mind, I imagine he was thinking about Bloody Sunday in 1920, where 30 people were killed in the Irish War for Independence. Or Bloody Sunday in 1972, where 26 civilians, unarmed civilians, were killed by British soldiers. All of this with the tensions between Catholics and Protestants. How long? How long must we sing this song? How long? Bono is said to have been thinking about these bloody Sundays in contrast to the resurrection of Jesus. And isn't it interesting that from 1920 to 1972 is approximately 50 years, and from 1972 to the present, another 50? Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Oh, that's another song for another day, right? (laughs) It's no wonder that as I was kind of a young preacher, every time before I began to write a message, I would listen to Sunday Bloody Sunday. There was something about the resurrection of Jesus held in tension with war and oppression and this justice that just welled up inside of me that said, come on, Lord Jesus, how long? How long must we sing this song? We're waiting for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, isn't this our human condition? We've been stuck in this stuff for centuries. And perhaps our human condition was no more on display than it was at Jesus' own trial. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, the religious elitists have been questioning Jesus, and now he's standing before Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect, the ruler of the Jews, Herod Antipas. And it seems as if our future hangs in the balance. It's a struggle of power. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and your Bible apps to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And as we ready ourselves for this scripture, let's pray. God, how long? How long must we sing this song? God, I imagine many of us have been watching the news and seeing all of these images coming out of the Ukraine and God, our hearts are broken. How does this level of evil still exist? And yet, we were reminded that we're human. 
that a lot of times we don't hang with people who don't look like us, vote like we do, live in the same zip code. So God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your justice reign. We pray this and we claim this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. The Bible tells us the whole assembly rose and led him, that is Jesus, off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him of, and saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching, and he started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Now on hearing this, Pilate asked the man if he was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. And he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Now, brothers and sisters, today's message is a little bit of a heady message, and so you're going to want to take a few notes. We're going to learn some things today. But it's amazing to me that sometimes when you, like, line the scriptures up, suddenly they speak so poignantly to what's happening in the news today. This is exactly what we're going to experience as we read through this scripture together. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the love of power tempts us day in and day out? I mean, you don't have to be the leader of a nation or even in charge of really anything. All you have to be is, well, wanting to be on the winning side. Now, it's March Madness. I don't know if anybody realized, but there was a game that was played last night, and I am not feeling particularly good this morning. I had a ticket to the national championship game that I had to sell back. I was supposed to be driving after this worship celebration to New Orleans today. And yet, here I am cheering for Kansas. <laughs> Let's go Kansas, right? Oh my goodness. A couple of weeks ago, um, one of our media servants, stellar media servants, Dave Goins, came to me and he said, you know, Pastor Rachel, I had this cousin who lives in North Carolina and he got me on this UNC page and I had no idea the animosity between Duke and UNC. And I was like, Dave, where have you been, right? He's like, it rivals that of the Ohio State University and that team up north. Of course it does. We're only humans, after all. Now, brothers and sisters, I am a sucker for a great sports rivalry. But what happens when all of that, like, animosity turns into hate, and that hate turns into division, and before we know it, we're at each other's throats? We're only human, after all. This is Jesus' trial, and he's, like, facing two kinds of teams, two different leaders, Pontius Pilate and Herod. Both of which who are grabbing 
for the love of power. Now, Pontius Pilate is Roman prefect. His mission is to hold on and maintain the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And Herod, well, he's a religious leader who just is leaning into his power so that he can oppress the people. All of it for the sake of political gain. Now, brothers and sisters, let this be a cautionary tale for you and me and for the whole wide world. Because sometimes we take our identity and we smudge it with the powers that be. We look at our political parties and our political candidates and sometimes we find this false sense of security that always leads us to the love of power. Say that with me, the love of power. And brothers and sisters, the love of power gets us in trouble. Let me be clear, Jesus was political, but not in the politics that we're thinking, right? I mean, Jesus was political in that he got himself crucified. His movement, what he was about was so countercultural that everybody around him couldn't stand keeping Jesus alive. It shouldn't shock us. From the beginning, even before Jesus was birthed, his very own mother declared, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. That's going to get you in trouble. This is the great reversal, God's upside down kingdom, and it's in stark contrast of the love of power. Now, it's interesting here that in the Gospel of Luke, Pontius Pilate is characterized as this guy who doesn't really see a threat in Jesus. Three times he's kind of dismissing Jesus as having anything uh, of significance to do, right? But before we, like, paint Pontius Pilate with a good guy brush, I think it's important to note that he's more than just this obscure figure in Jesus' passion narrative. Pilate has a history. In fact, first century Jewish historians Philo and Josephus said that Pontius Pilate was cruel. He was cutthroat. He was an absolute corrupt thief. I want you to realize earlier in Luke's gospel, it was Pilate who killed some Galileans, literally mixing their blood with the temple sacrifices. Luke 13.1, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Not a nice guy. He's a piece of work. Pontius Pilate is so desperate for the love of power. He has so much animosity toward the Jews that it gets him ousted from this position three years after Jesus' trial. He loves power. But not only Pilate, Herod Antipas as well. Who is this Herod? I mean, we hear the term Herod over and over and over again throughout the Bible narratives. Well, most of the time when we hear Herod, we're thinking Herod the Great, the guy who was uh, the ruler at the time of Jesus' birth, who died there shortly thereafter. Herod the Great was this ruthless leader who had sons and a sister who took over because they weren't the leader that Herod was. And so all of his territories were divided between those sons, Herod Antipas, 
Philip, also known as Herod Philip, because you know you got to name all your kids the same name, and Archelaus, and his sister Salome, all divided territory. And who has the territory of Galilee? But Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the same Herod that we read about who throws this party, has a little too much to drink, sees his stepdaughter dancing. Yeah, it's gross. Sees his stepdaughter dancing and then says, you can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And what does she ask for? The head of John the baptizer. And Herod gives it to her. Cruel, oppressive, ruthless. The love of power is the name of the game for the Herod's and the pilots of the world. So Pilate has Jesus on trial, and he hears that he's a Galilean, and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll pawn him off on Herod. And Herod is excited to meet Jesus. And what does Herod do? What's his response? Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. In other words, this guy is a miracle worker, and I want to see something amazing. He's excited about seeing Jesus. And does Jesus do one of his tricks for Herod? Absolutely not. Because I want you to notice what's happening here. Herod is the Roman client king. And he's face to face with the king of kings. And Herod thinks he has all the power. But he doesn't. Jesus does. And what does Jesus do with all of that power? Look at verse 9. Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Herod. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because throughout our history as followers of Jesus, sometimes we have confused the will of God with the will of the state. It started with Constantine putting a cross on the flags that he led into battle. It continued with the Crusades. People have wielded the Bible as a weapon for everything from chattel slavery to genocide throughout the globe. And brothers and sisters, if we think for a second that, ah, we wouldn't do that, let's think again. The love of power is dangerous. It's seductive. And we've got to be prayerfully careful. So let's talk about politics. Because you know I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> right? Jesus had some politics. You know, all of us, every single one of us, me included, sometimes we get so caught up in our political parties or our political candidates that we start seeing them as our saviors. But they ain't nobody who's savior but one. Can I get an amen? I mean, it doesn't matter what camp we're in. Jesus is the one and only savior of the world. But sometimes we get so caught up in the rhetoric. And sometimes we, like the religious elites, want to stir up the crowd. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to manipulate the political candidate. They're trying to manipulate Pilate. 
They begin to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nature, nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah King. And when that didn't work, they went on to say he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. In other words, come on, Pilate. You know who this dude is? He claims to be Messiah King, not Caesar, this guy. You got to do something about it. Brothers and sisters, they needed Pilate. They couldn't crucify Jesus on their own. No, they needed Rome for that. And so they say to Pilate, he's a Galilean. Remember those rebellious Galileans? Remember what you did before? We need you to do it again. Why is it as human beings that when things aren't going our way, when we get fearful, we start stirring the pot? We start holding on to the love of power. It's our stinking human nature. But Jesus, mm, Jesus gives us a different way. A different politic, if you will. The way of suffering. Say that with me. The way of suffering. So here's Jesus standing before these folk with seeming power. And what does he do? He remains silent. He doesn't say a word. I don't know about you, but this is not how I feel when people are accusing me of stuff. This is not what I do when I'm being bombarded with all of these accusations. There is something that wells up within me that wants to fight. Don't believe me? Did you not watch the Oscars last weekend, right? This is what happens. We're only human after all, but not Jesus. Something completely other is happening in Jesus. He is giving us a different way to live, a different way to be, the way of suffering. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, said it this way. He said, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was cru crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid it on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as the sheep before a shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus Christ suffered for you and me and the whole daggone world. And when face to face with the love of power, what does Jesus do? He doesn't play their game. He doesn't believe that the strongest arm wins. No, he allows God to be his defender. And it's weird and it's counterintuitive and it makes everything on the inside of us want to scream, no way, Jesus, there's got to be a different way. And yet, Jesus shows us that no, this is the way, the truth and the life, the way of suffering we don't want it to be true, but it's true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us a picture 
of what leadership looks like. You know, sometimes we get confused and we think that leadership is, is all about being strong. We think that leadership should look a certain way, smell a certain way, have certain characteristics and qualities. But over and over again, Jesus shows that God's ultimate leadership is through service and sacrifice. In his book, The Motive, Patrick Lincioni writes the story, this parable that he declares is like his most important parable on leadership and how leadership transforms the world. In it, he writes, I believe it's long past time that we as individuals and as a society reestablish the standard that leadership can never be about the leader more than the led. He goes on to say that all leadership is servant leadership. In fact, we should get rid of the word servant leadership because that should be the definition of leadership. Paul says it this way about Jesus in Philippians 2, 5, and 8. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you realize the shame of the cross, the humility of the cross? Suffering means in embracing God's invitation to serve, yes, to serve God, but also to serve one another. At the cross, Jesus made it clear that we must reject the love of power and embrace the power of love. Say that phrase with me, the power of love. The love of power is seductive. But the power of love transforms individuals and communities and heals war-torn countries. As we read through the New Testament, we experience a Jesus, a humility, a love like we've never experienced before. A love that says you turn the other cheek, you love your enemy, I'd rather be killed than kill. A love that holds up people on the margin, that gives voice to the voiceless. A love that pours out grace and mercy over the whole wide world. It's interesting, isn't it? That by the end of the story between Pilate and Herod, they become friends? No, we shouldn't be Surprised by that? I mean, Jesus' whole work is the work of reconciliation. I know it's because they have a common enemy, but here we go. Jesus is who he says he is. Healers heal. Saviors save. Redeemers redeem. The power of love. And it's the power of love that transforms ordinary people. Folk like... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who during the civil rights movement chose to lean into nonviolent resistance because of Jesus' power of love. Or even people outside the faith like Gandhi who read the Sermon on the Mount and said, yes, I'm going to humble myself and serve in this kind of way. And it's happened throughout the entire Ukraine. Have you heard reports of Roman soldiers like punching holes in their gas tanks? Whole units laying down their weapons, abandoning combat zones because they can't do what Putin wants them to do. 
People protesting all over the country of Russia because they ain't about this business. Reminding us that the greatest weapon that we have is love. Here's what I want us all to do. Open our hands and our hearts as we pray together this prayer of confession. Christ invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and who seek to live in justice and peace with one another. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us confess our sins before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. I've got two invitations for you before you go. First, subscribe to our podcast so it shows up in your feed every week. And if today's message inspired you, and you'd like more people to hear it, you can give a financial gift through the Ginghamsburg app or online at ginghamsburg.org.